afternoon. I'm Alex Mosed. Welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. Happy Friday. And if you were watching our live stream yesterday, we had Tree Tran, uh, co-founder, former CEO of Munchery. Uh, he live streamed in and we were talking about the Grubhub news where this thing had leaked to the press somehow probably by a disgruntled uh, banker that didn't get the deal. They, they had engaged an advisor to explore strategic options. Basically, would someone want to go buy Grubhub? Spoke about the difficulty of that industry. And today, this news uh, appeared that Kroger and Walmart have emerged as possible suitors of Grubhub. Well, guess where that was predicted, actually, exactly on this show? Less than 24 hours ago, right after the Grubhub news broke that they were exploring something. I didn't see it, honestly. Tree did. Um, and so let's listen in to, to how he pieced this together and, and why he thought that, that Walmart might be an interesting play here. I don't know if it makes sense for Grubhub to join force uh, with, with like a Postmate or something like that. I think a more strategic acquisition like... You know, I'm just making this up, right? What if an existing powerhouse like Walmart decide, hey, I want to get into this game. I want to own my own delivery platform. I don't want to rely on uh, uh, an existing one. I don't want to be just, uh, you know, uh, sitting duck if something goes wrong with that company and I want to run my own thing. Uh, that may be a good, a good thing to explore, right? Only time will tell. And if they get a company like Grubhub in, in desperations uh, of, of an acquisition, they can get it for a good price. Tree pretty much hit it on the head there. Looks like a Walmart and potentially a Kroger are at least interested in, in having a conversation and, and taking a deeper look at this. And what Tree was saying was that this would make more sense, a strategic acquisition, as opposed to a roll up between, say, a Postmates and a Grubhub, which both I think are probably roughly tied for the number three spot uh, or say a DoorDash acquiring the smaller Grubhub now because there aren't as many strategic synergies. Yes, you are taking some competition out of the game, but the irony is that Grubhub is the one that's actually been more conservative, is profitable, and actually has done less to change user behavior to basically make these users jump from one food delivery platform to another. That was the problem that Grubhub identified in their quarterly call last quarter and has basically resulted in their share price sinking quite drastically, them needing to take a huge wholesale strategic shift in their model and their approach to deal with the changing user behavior environment that was really created by the Uber Eats, DoorDash, and Postmates of the world. So, um, yeah, clearly uh, Tree nailed this, and we'll see if this actually comes true or not. Uh, $5 billion compared to Walmart's market cap. They, Walmart does over $500 billion in revenue. Walmart's market cap is $330 billion. So Walmart could certainly bankroll um, an expansion by Grubhub to actually go and aggressively try and uh, um, bring the fight to a DoorDash and a um, and an Uber Eats. So we'll see how that goes. Looking at Mr. Zuckerberg, so Zuckerberg posted his 10-year uh, outlook 
uh, five key areas of focus for Facebook moving forward. It's his self-reflection that, uh, that he does on an annual basis. It's funny, this article highlights that every year he would, he would have a New Year's resolution and kind of try something new. In 2009, he decided to wear a tie to work every day. 2015, read a book every week. I thought the funniest one of these annual New Year's resolutions that, that Zucky agreed to was to kill the meat that he would eat. So he would kill a chicken. If he wanted to eat chicken, he'd kill a chicken. If he wanted to eat, I guess, steak, he would kill a cow. But he would, he would actually kill the animal uh, that he eats. I imagine he probably ate a lot of vegetarian food that year since he had to be killing a lot of animals. But um, anyway, they failed to mention that, which is probably the best example of his little annual resolutions here but his five key areas of focus were pretty interesting so let's dig into a few of these the first one i didn't think was that interesting the second one i did like uh so a new private social platform basically what he says here is a shift to smaller more enclosed network activity away from public posting so not wanting to necessarily have everyone and all your friends or you know and you all, your friend network is also cluttered. You know, some people are your friends and your pseudo friends or you want followers, but they're not really your friends. So how much can you really share? How comfortable do you really, uh, how comfortable are you to actually share everything that you would want to share? So you recently, in the past, I guess, few months, uh, Instagram allows you to have close friends. So you can post stories that only your close friends can see, right? Um, so you can kind of see that Facebook uh, is is starting to figure out how they can do this. Another example of of highlighting smaller, more enclosed social network and network activity is certainly in chat and messaging. We've seen them pushing Facebook Messenger, buying WhatsApp, really pushing these um, messaging communication platforms very aggressively. And so it'll be interesting to see some of these like micro social networks uh, appear. I think he's he's definitely. I mean, it's Zuckerberg, so he's he's going to be correct on this. The interesting thing about micro social networks, micro micro social networks were kind of like all the rage like 10 years ago. And we actually highlight one of the examples in the book. A micro social network raises 50 million dollars. And it was kind of like Instagram, but for just people within a 50 mile radius of you. And then they launched. They raised all this money. They launched. But then the problem was. The network wasn't big. It was just a new startup. It just launched out of nothing. And so your feed was completely empty. So the thesis was nice, micro social network, but you needed such tremendous scale and they had some big launch, which they might have had a lot of users, but the network effects were not localized, which was the whole point of their core transaction, their interaction model. And the, the company folded shortly after launch. Um, kind of unfortunate, but a return to micro social networks is something that he sees happening uh, over the next decade. Um, decentralizing opportunity. I was gonna. I was reading this and I was like, okay, where's the crypto reference? Uh, where's the blockchain reference? Nope, it didn't come up, which I was pleasantly surprised about. Instead, he took it in a different direction. He said Zuckerberg points to the capacity for Facebook to give people better ways to build their own businesses and facilitate common tasks. He's talking about fund transfer online. Uh, giving other tools to businesses, letting people sell products, kind of like what we see with Instagram, 
uh, with with the shopping dynamic, kind of the product marketplace on Instagram, right? So actually, what I take from this is that Facebook isn't really focusing as much on social networking as a major growth opportunity over the next 10 years. And how can they move into other platform types like payments, like product marketplaces? Um, there's, a, there's a third one, which I'm going to touch on in a second. But um, the other example that he gives here is in the last decade, the fastest growth in the economy has been in the tech industry. In the next dec- decade, I expect technology will continue to create opportunity, but more through enabling all the other parts of the economy to make better use of technology and grow even faster. The other takeaway from this, I think, is it's, it's actually what Applico does, which is actually the whole point of this show. It's the intersection of traditional enterprise and new technology-driven business models. And how are these two things going to come together? We are just starting to see that, for example, take B2B distribution, take uh, what's happening in the automotive industry, right? How are these kind of older, sleepier industries, some of these industries that weren't, weren't the ones where technology was the first mover and uh, it was e- easy to just kind of start a business, start a pure tech company, but in some of these more entrenched, more industrial, more regulated industries where it's taken, it's taken, you know, we're now 20-ish years, 20, 25 years into uh, the platform revolution, new platform business models, uh, the internet being here. I think that's essentially what he's getting at is there's going to be a whole slew of opportunity as technology gets more ingrained into these traditional businesses, more traditional industries. That's going to be super exciting. I completely agree with this. The next computing platform is number four, where he's talking about AR and VR. These are development platform models. He actually says, if we deliver on what we're building, this should be much closer to reality by 2030. Does that mean he thinks it's going to take 10 years for AR and VR to take off? I kind of, <laughs> it kind of reads that way, um, <laughs> which would be quite unfortunate for the billions of dollars that they've already spent in this area. But who knows? We'll see. Um, this goes to another thing that we've talked about a lot. And I'll, I'll, I'll come back to this in a second after I go to the new forms of governance. Uh, So his last point here is new forms of governance. One of the big questions for the next decade is how should we govern the large new digital communities that the internet has enabled? Uh, You have platforms like Facebook have to make trade-offs on social values, like between free expression and safety or between privacy and law enforcement, or between creating open systems and locking down data and access. From this perspective, I don't think private companies should be making so many important decisions that touch on fundamental democratic values. Um, he calls for greater regulation. We've spoken about this. Zuckerberg has literally come out publicly. I think probably the first time was in June of 2019 at the Aspen Ideas Festival, where he said, look, I'm not going to be able to get the balance right. This is the role of government to help us figure out how do we, what is us protecting people from being harassed online from abusive or harmful content? And what is us violating free speech and the First Amendment? Um, and he said, look, we need guidance. And, and the government has failed 
to provide that guidance and and wade into that conversation, which is really a disservice when you think about the role of the FTC and literally have this guy asking for it, yet they don't want to do it. All they want to talk about is uh, privacy laws. I mean, it's a joke. So anyway, let's go back to point number four, the next computing platform. You've spoken about that there has been a decline in first financings. Check this out. Uh, So you see here the dark blue. This is the number of first financing. First financing, so I'm building a tech startup. I need to go get my first round of institutional money. See this 2014? There's the peak. Bam, it starts to go down. Um, What you actually have seen, you've still seen huge amounts of investment dollars still going into You've actually seen the, oh, this graph doesn't show it. This just shows the number of financings total. But if you actually look at the total amount of VC money going into tech startups, that total amount of money has actually been going up. I predict in 2020, it'll go down because a lot of that increase the past few years could be attributed to these mega, mega fundraising deals, thanks to SoftBank. So despite over the past five years from 2014, the overall amount of VC money increasing year over year into tech startups, this is in the US, the amount of first financings has actually been declining year over year. So that means there's less tech companies basically being founded or maybe, you know, or or able to get that first round of, of financing. That to me is directly attributed to the fact that there has not been a mega development platform introduced in the past handful of years. So what's a mega development platform? Oh, this thing called the iPhone and Android, right? Where now I have an idea for an app. I can go build a tech company. I can go build my tech startup and make an app for the iPhone or the Android. But, you know, these things kind of have like a 10-year half-life, right? So at around the five-year mark, certainly by now, nine or 10 years into the the app store, What's that novel new app idea that you're going to come up with? I mean, it's kind of hard, right? I mean, there's a lot of apps that have been made. A lot of people have built apps. That a lot of them have failed. What's, you're not just going to magically come up with an idea. And there's only so many new sources of data. So like when, when you had GPS, right? Now you could build a whole bunch of new apps. When you have um, the self-facing camera, now you can do a whole bunch of like selfie apps, right? So there's also a limited amount of new sensory information that can go into these smartphones. All of that's contributing to the fact that it's just harder to go create a tech startup over the past five years that's been declining. And you need a new development platform like AR or VR for that to, to, to really come into the foray. And then I think what you'll see is a massive new influx of new tech startups because they have a, a development platform to go build on top of. So you can kind of think about like we have eight different types of platform businesses. These are um, controlled development platforms and getting a little technical with you all here because there's different types of development platforms. There's a Salesforce type of development platform, but there is no actually operating system on a Salesforce. That Those aren't the mega development platforms. The mega development platforms have operating systems. Uh, and, and, a, and a new interface, a new interaction model for the consumer to interact with, right? Your desktop computer, um, the internet, 
smartphones. I think AR and VR could be one. I think the one that'll come sooner than AR and VR is an automotive. Uh, there's a trillion dollars worth of services going into the vehicle pre-autonomy every year. There's a huge amount of opportunity if you can open up these command and control APIs in the car. Uh, we've touched on that before. I won't go down that path right now. So anyway, until there's a new mega development platform with an operating system at scale, this trend, I think, is only going to continue. What has happened in its place? Well, you can actually thank Zuckerberg for it. So there's this song I've been obsessed with, or just the intro to it. I want to listen to it while I play it for you. Uh, and that's called Difty. Off of the ground. Bitches love the ground. Oh, one more time, one Off more time. Off of the ground. Bitches love the ground. Oh, wait. It's true. Difty means did it for the gram, or or the I is Instagram, so you could say it's diff G, whatever. Um, this guy says it's all for the gram. It's true. It's all for the gram. I would say if you're a Gen Zer, which means you're born after the year 2000, the idea of being a tech entrepreneur, that's not actually the holy grail for you. Uh, I think the holy grail for Gen Zers is to be an influencer on either Instagram or now TikTok or Snapchat. That is the holy grail. Like, I think that's the really cool thing to be. I'm sure there's a, a good amount of people that also want to be tech entrepreneurs and, and, and startup entrepreneurs and, you know, make billions of dollars. But the risk reward ratio on that is crazy, right? I mean, it is so difficult to hit it big and become a billionaire as a tech entrepreneur. I'd say it's a little bit more palatable, certainly less of a startup cost to become an influencer. All you need is your phone and some crazy ideas. Um, and, uh, and, and you could hit it big. You could be an influencer making millions of dollars. And there's actually hundreds of thousands of these influencers that get paid at least a few thousand dollars per sponsored post. I think that is where Gen Zers, I mean, I think that's, I think that's what it is. It's all for the gram. So anyway, Zuckerberg has basically, uh, led, partially led to the decline of people wanting to be tech entrepreneurs. I will credit him. For that. Okay. Spotify. Spotify. Some people have asked us, is Spotify a platform? No, Spotify is not a platform because the supply is not fragmented and the supply sits on their balance sheet. Actually, the supply is why Spotify barely makes any money. Basically, there's four massive music labels and they control pretty much all the music content and they continue to wield that club very aggressively on Spotify and raise their royalty rates and Spotify basically, I mean, they have leverage because they have a lot of demand, but they certainly don't have anywhere near to the amount of leverage that um, a true content platform has over its supply. So the whole idea of a take rate model doesn't exist for Spotify because they have to pay royalties to these music labels. Um, Netflix, I would argue, actually has even more leverage over its supply than Spotify does because the music industry, they've done a great job. And actually all four music labels have created a centralized organization. I think it's called the RIAA. Uh, yeah, I don't know. What is RIAA? Yeah, Recording Industry Association of America. It's basically just a, a negotiating uh, tie-up that, that says all four of them are going to negotiate with one entity 
with Spotify. I mean, it's a great thing for the for these music labels. Horrible thing for Spotify. That doesn't exist even in the uh, you know video movie industry. So Spotify has been making a huge push to say, how can I become a platform? How can I find fragmented supply? And here you go, podcasts. So um, Spotify has made three acquisitions in this space: Gimlet Media, Anchor, and Parcast. And what they've what they've done is they've so how do you you need to have a different revenue model? You need to have an incentive model to make the podcasts really sticky and really want to work with you, Spotify, as opposed to Apple Music um, or the other outlets that you could distribute your podcast through. So they've bought a lot of these, these kind of SaaS tool providers that help you give tools and services to podcast creators. We use uh, one or multiple of these places that they've acquired. And now they're also bundling in ads into the podcast, and then they're doing ad revenue splits with the podcast creators to just fully try and close that loop and, and make it even stickier with the podcast creators. So this is a huge initiative for Spotify. So podcast listenership on Spotify jumped 39% in Q3 from the prior quarter. Uh, and they're really trying to drive penetration throughout their whole audience. So to put it in perspective, they, they only have about 14% of penetration into their user base. So there's a huge amount of opportunity for them to continue to penetrate podcast viewership or listenership amongst their user base. And uh, they see a huge opportunity here to build that supply side network effect. Makes complete sense. I'm all on board with that. Would they ever be able to join Platt? I don't know about that one. They would. This would need to be, um, you know, a, a, a considerable lift for Spotify to get to that point. I think it's still a little bit ways away before they're going to have enough kind of platform revenue, which would only be derived from the from the podcast business. Looks like the total spend, podcast advertising spend, is going to be one point six billion dollars, and that's by twenty twenty two. So I don't know if it's a big enough. Pie. Maybe if they capture over half the pie, then maybe sure. Let's you know. Let's see if they could um, be included or not. But it's going to take a little bit of time, uh, or actually a lot of time, before I think Spotify completes this. That said, it'll give them an edge. It'll make the business uh, certainly have have the business have more control over its own destiny and have it have an actual part of the business where they have some demand and supply side network effects that can help them out. So that'll be good for them. So last topic here is we've been asked about, um, well, you know, there's a lot of very smart executives in large traditional businesses. There's a lot of uh, heads of innovation. There's a lot of uh, heads of strategy. There's a lot of kind of heads of business development. People that are very forward-looking in nature, they've literally, they're literally in a role to look not just over the short term, but over the medium to long term at a traditional business. And what they see on the horizon is inevitable disruption. They see new business models coming in, new technologies coming in, and they say, hey, we need to try and be in these new areas. And how are we going to get there, right? Because my core business does not fit these new models. And actually, these new models would probably commoditize part of my core business, but we need to 
be playing not just where the puck is, but where the puck is going to be, right? Um, so how do we do that? And it really all starts in the boardroom. And so uh, what we want to talk about is how do you build consensus in the boardroom if you're not in the boardroom by default, right? If you're not on that C-suite executive team, but you are still in a powerful role, you lead teams, you're supposed to be leading that new innovative mid to long-term thinking, um, how do you actually gain consensus from the top down? It's very difficult. And so I would start thinking about it. At, there's two different boardrooms. There's a boardroom for literally the board of directors. And then there is a boardroom, which is amongst the C-suite, right? The CEO and that C-suite executive team. When you want to broach the conversation about a long-term, disruptive, risky, probably expensive uh, investment or new business initiative, the key thing, there's a couple of kind of key uh, deal breakers, right? These are absolutes. If you don't have them, there's no point in going down this path in the first place. First deal breaker is autonomy. If this new disruptive, risky, long-term initiative does not have autonomy away from the core business, no point in even starting down that path. Now, autonomy could mean I have a separate business unit uh, or a separate kind of skunk work operation which um, can go operate on its own little sandbox and I can try and go build this new initiative from scratch. Or obviously you could try and go buy a company. Buying a company is, is another hurdle. But let's just talk about saying that first point. How do I gain consensus in the boardroom, in the C-suite boardroom, to try and get the, uh, the green light to go and explore and try and validate a new business model? And so the key here is to have the CEO's interest in this new business initiative. If the CEO is not interested, that's the other, that's the second non-starter. Don't bother. Anything that is truly big enough that a large enterprise is going to care about, so it needs to be pretty big in terms of the vision and the scale of, of where it could go and what it could become. Uh, is inherently going to probably hurt part of the core business, either by directly commoditizing the existing business model, which I mentioned, or it's certainly going to require resources that would rather be allocated to the core business today. That could be resources both in terms of money and resources certainly in terms of time, which could honestly be more valuable than the money, right? Where are the executives and your team and, and just the teams in general focus going to be? In terms of there's only so many hours in the day. So in order for those two things, and you're going to need both of those two things to be allocated to any kind of new business model initiative, you're never going to get those two things unless the CEO is interested in exploring something like this. Um, so if the CEO is not interested in these kinds of, in, in, in this new business model initiative, then there's no point in even trying to get consensus in that C-suite boardroom. Now, how do you get this in front of the CEO? Well, um, if you don't have the ability to go through your boss and then your boss can help set up a meeting with the CEO to see if this is of interest to him or her, uh, then you can try and go outside. So a big focus of Applico is to develop relationships with the C-suite, particularly with CEOs and at the board level, because we won't do any work 
unless the CEO is involved. We've learned this the hard way, that if the CEO isn't interested in these kinds of things, we're wasting everyone's time. We're wasting our time and your time, frankly. So you've got to get to the CEO one way or another, either internally, and you've got that kind of culture where you can get, can I get 30 minutes on the CEO's calendar? Because me and my boss feel like this is a pretty good new initiative. It's worth ex potentially exploring. Could we try and validate this business model? Okay, let's vet that. Let's do it through the proper channels internally. See if the CEO is interested in that. You don't need to spend any money to get to this point. This is purely a conversation with some good research and framing. Also on our side, right? This is a conversation with a subject matter expert that says, we understand platform business models better than anyone else. We understand how to bridge the gap between traditional enterprise and creating new platform businesses. Um, that can actually help a lot when you have a subject matter expert in the room with a CEO versus if there's somewhat of a, a lack of credibility um, or the CEO is a little bit more risk averse. And that's the other thing to think about. So the last thing to think about is, so if you can get the CEO on board, then generally I would say the CEO can set the tone in that C-suite closed door boardroom meeting, right? So you're not all the way solved. And it's good to then go have one-on-one -on -one meetings with key players on the C-suite, certainly key players on the C-suite who you would want resources from uh, or whose business units you would want some kind of involvement from them or input from them uh, during, say, some initial business model validation, right? You definitely want to have one-on-one -on -one meetings after you see that the CEO is on board or you could talk to them in advance if you have a good relationship or they're also a forward, forward uh, looking thinker. But the other thing is, what kind of status does the CEO have in the company? Um, is this a new CEO who wants to come and really make a mark and uh, is ready to, you know, is new in the job? and wants to green light some new initiatives sooner rather than later, maybe, you know, not in the first six months, but let's say in the first six to 18 months, really looking to put one or two programs into place that could fundamentally change the course of the business over a three to seven-ish year period of time. Is this a CEO who has been there for five plus years, who is also a chairman? So that means they're also on the board, uh, who has a good rapport with the board. Right. And ultimately, what I'm getting at is that as the CEO, in order to greenlight a new risky business model exploratory initiative for, say, a few months' time, does the CEO want to run this by his or her board in advance of doing that or not? If yes, then it's a little bit of a different situation in terms of you now need to cater to both boardrooms. If no, well, then you don't need to worry about the second boardroom of the board. That all is going to depend on a case-by-case -case basis in terms of basically the relationship that the CEO has with the board. The one caveat I will provide on all of this is that if the business is in dire straits or is underwater and has a lot of fires going on, then you can pretty much throw out any kind of new disruptive risky business model initiative. It's just not it's just not on the table. 
the business is fighting for self-preservation, not for long-term innovation and disruption. So if this is your job, you might want to look for another job at another company that has its head above water, that has a good stable business. Maybe growth is slowing or stalling, but there's still growth. You still have a profitable business. You see there could be some risk on the horizon. But if you've got a business that is literally in the thick of war, fighting for self-preservation, that thing is more so looking at probably strategic exits or strategic tie-ups in the near term as opposed to truly mid to long-term disruptive innovation. We'll talk more about the, the actual board of director dynamic in a follow-up video, but that's the first part of how to build consensus in the boardroom. Have a great weekend. Thanks for joining us on Winner Take All.